The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. People around the world, and this is universally true across all markets, are trading up and drinking better. Not drinking more, drinking better. That plays to our portfolio strength. The second one is in most parts of the world, spirits is taking share of total beverage alcohol or doing better than beer and wine. And our portfolio is well positioned for both those trends. That's Ivan Menezes the chief executive of the world's leading spirits producer, Diageo. Outlining just some of the reasons why the company has been so successful in recent years and is likely to keep growing. Welcome to Magellan in the Know. In this episode, Ivan Menezes speaks about Diageo's impressive corporate philosophy and how it has taken advantage of consumer trends that he says will only strengthen over coming years. He speaks with Magellan's head of consumer franchises, Hannah Dickinson, about the crucial role played by bartenders and word of mouth, and how savvy trend-setting investments, sometimes decades ahead of products coming to market, place Diageo well to weather any economic storm. But first, a warm welcome from Hannah. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of In The Know, Magellan's monthly podcast, which has now passed the milestone of 250,000 downloads. So thank you to all of our listeners out there. I'm Hannah Dickinson, Head of Consumer Franchises in Magellan's investment team. And today I'm joined by Ivan Menezes, the CEO of Diageo. Diageo is the world's largest manufacturer of distilled spirits, and it's a relatively recent addition to the Magellan Global Fund. The business is in the midst of a powerful cyclical recovery as the world emerges from the pandemic. But as shareholders, we're focused on some of the more sustainable growth drivers that will help Diageo to deliver attractive returns for years to come. So Ivan, welcome, and thank you for making time for this discussion to help our listeners understand the investment case for Diageo. Great to be here, Hannah. So Ivan, you've been at the helm of Diageo since 2013, but you've been at the company since 1997 across various roles and geographies. Perhaps you could start with telling us a bit about your career journey, your pathway through the business, and how you've seen it evolve over time. Sure. Uh, this is my 25th year at the Diageo and my first podcast, so I'm happy to be doing your 25th podcast. <laughs> I'm glad you're here too. <laughs> I grew up in India and actually left India when I was 25. And my first job was with Nestle in India. And when we were building these amazing brands like Nescafe and Maggi Noodles and the like, and I, I was in marketing and new products uh, for several years. And then I went to America ended up working in strategy consulting for consumer businesses and uh, through a variety of moves, then came to a predecessor company of the Diageo called Guinness PLC in 1997. I came in as the head of strategy and within a few months, this incredible merger of equals happened. Guinness and GradMet were put together to form the Diageo. So I've seen this baby right from the start, and I've been very privileged in uh, the opportunities I've had. I was the integration manager 
putting the merger together. I was then the head of marketing, the CMO. I ran uh, international division. And then I was in North America for a long time before I became CEO. So uh, I came in, as you said, in 2013 to be CEO. And I'd say the things that stood out for me coming into that role was, how do we create an exciting, reliable compounder and deliver consistent growth and value creation? How do we do the right things for the short, medium, and long term? This is a business you've got to think in decades. And how do you create a culture that's a distinctive advantage? People and culture really go with these iconic brands. And I've been on that journey the last uh, nine plus years as CEO. Uh, You might be surprised to hear that you're one of the very few CEOs we hear speaking the language of investments, which is, you know, compounders. That's something we talk about a lot, but not something we hear many CEOs talk about. But I'm interested in your view, Ivan, on what differentiates Diageo from other large multinational consumer franchises. Sure. So a few things. One is we are in a very attractive sector. Premium drinks around the world has good growth and people are drinking better. Uh, Secondly, we have put together an advantaged portfolio. Now, this has taken some shaping. We've exited businesses and added brands and businesses. And today, I'd say a core strength is our brand and category portfolio and our geographic footprint. This is a lovely business because it has great growth in the emerging market still. But we have a very profitable and nicely growing business in the developed world. The U.S. is a powerhouse business for us, and I call it the world's uh, most exciting developing market because the demographics in the U.S. are very attractive for us and for premium spirits and the taste changes that are happening. And then I would say we get this right balance about sustainable value creation and performance and creating a company that's here to endure and do the right things for the planet, for our people, and most importantly, for responsible drinking and ensuring that people who choose to drink, drink in moderation and drink better. That's what we are out to create. And uh, the combination of our growth outlook and the kind of culture and company we're creating, I think that's what's really distinctive about the Arjo. Ivan, most consumer staples companies are lucky if they can grow in line with GDP, but your global revenue has compounded at a rate of over 9% since 2019, despite all of the ups and downs of the pandemic. Can you talk about some of the structural tailwinds that are fueling the growth of the spirits industry? A few key things. Uh, One is, firstly, let me just remind you, we are only a 4.5% share player in the premium drinks value globally. So I I like to think of the Arjo as a startup. We have a lot of opportunity out there. Now, within that premium drinks, alcoholic beverage market, the two trends of note is one, people around the world, and this is universally true across all markets, are trading up and drinking better, not drinking more, drinking better. That plays to our portfolio strength. The second one is in most parts of the world, Spirits is taking share of total beverage alcohol or doing better than beer and wine. And our portfolio is well positioned for both those trends. But I think if you look at our category, it is an affordable luxury. The average American household that buys spirits spends a a dollar a day 
on the spirits purchases for at-home consumption. It's an infrequent purchase. You're typically shopping five or six times a year. The brand stands for a lot. And that gives the trading up resilience because people are willing to spend a couple of dollars more for a bottle of Kettle One vodka because what you serve at home says a lot about you. And you want better quality liquids and brands and are willing to pay a little more for it. So you put this all together and you see a very attractive runway ahead. And as you pointed out in the last, since the pandemic, we've grown at a compound growth rate of 9%. Now, we're not saying that will sustain our medium term guidance as we want to grow the company's top line at 5 to 7% consistently and expand margins while we reinvest into the business. Perhaps as a result of your innovation and acquisition strategy, your performance relative to peers has been improving in recent years, and you're now consistently gaining share in most markets. In your mind, what are the key drivers of that improvement and how sustainable are they? I'm very pleased with our share gains uh, in recent years. So uh, we set an ambition, actually, at our Capital Markets Day about seven, eight months ago to take uh, what we call total beverage alcohol market share in value globally from 4% to 6% by 2030. Now, in 2021, we achieved 4.6%. So we went from 4 to 46 and group share much faster than any of our major competitors in beer, spirits, or wine. In 85% of our business, the Arjo is gaining a holding market share, which is a high bar. Now, what's behind that? Uh, a few things. One is, this is a company that's obsessed with consumers and uh, excellence in brand building. So we put amazing digital and data capabilities in the company in the last few years, but you match that with real creative flair. So how we build Johnny Walker to be an aspirational, vibrant brand for the emerging generations coming through in emerging markets and the developed world, it takes both great analytics and great creative flair. So that helps us. Uh, We're a strong innovator and our track record on innovation has continued to build every year. And then we're investing So our reinvestment in our marketing spend, which is a huge driver of our business, has gone up substantially from a little over 15% of sales to approaching nearly 18% of sales, 17.6%. This is a huge step up in hundreds of millions of dollars that are being deployed much more effectively in how we are engaging with consumers And we have the tools to track the effectiveness of it. So this helps us recruit new consumers to our brand franchises and keep our brands really healthy. And I'd say that combination, coupled with our capabilities in brand building, commercial execution, supply chain, uh, have all enabled us to enjoy this this excellent market share performance. And uh, we certainly intend to sustain that momentum. I'd like to delve into one of my favourite topics, tequila. For our listeners, your tequila sales grew 57% last year, and a lot of that exceptional growth was driven by the Casamigos brand, which your team acquired from George Clooney in 2017 for $1 billion US dollars. 
What gave you the the confidence to make such a large bet on the category and what made you choose that brand specifically? You know, when I came in as CEO in 2013, one of the biggest strategic gaps we saw in our portfolio was tequila. We didn't own a tequila outright. And in uh, 2015, we were able to acquire Don Julio. And then in 2017, as you pointed out, Casamigos. Now, why did we do that? I mean, we could see, you know, the Archo doesn't create trends, but we can spot them early. And that I say to our teams all the time, the most important thing is spot a trend early and be quicker at seizing the opportunity. So we saw this development of the super ultra premium end of the tequila market accelerating. There were early signs. And it is uh, the Hollywood set was drinking high-end tequila, NBA players, uh, the basketball set were, it was on trend. And our projection said this was going to be one of the most attractive growth sectors in the U.S. spirits market. And so uh, we went after these two brands. And uh, very fortunately, they are now two of the hottest brands in the tequila category. Our teams have done a phenomenal job in building them and growing them. And so today, globally, tequila from 0% is now 10% of the company. And that's primarily in the U.S. and a bit in Mexico. We're excited about the category. We see a lot of runway ahead. Casamigos has been a phenomenal uh, addition to our portfolio. Don Julio continues to build and premiumize. And uh, our job is to keep these brands uh, vibrant, aspirational, and we haven't yet begun building the category worldwide, where there's a lot of interest developing. And uh, we see in the next decade, uh, good international growth as well for the top end of tequila. How long do these types of consumption trends usually last? They're quite long dated. This is the beauty of the spirits business. They don't turn on a dime. They go on. So we anticipate seeing another five to 10 years of the tequila category growing faster than the U.S. spirits industry. And a couple of data points. The penetration, say, of a category like whiskey in the U.S. is 27%. Tequila is only 15 So it still has runway to go. Uh, the other way to look at it, you know, there are certain states in America like California and Texas and Arizona, where tequila is more developed. And it represents about 20% of the spirits uh, market in those states. But you've got a lot of America, uh, New York, Florida, the Northeast, uh, where tequila is under 10%. So you put these data points together, and you look at the consumer traction. There's a huge amount of interest in this category. It cuts across demographics, it cuts across day parts, it cuts across the versatility of drinks. It's not just the shot and the margarita, but you're now into uh, classic cocktails made with premium tequila. Tequila on the rocks or with club soda is uh, very popular in America. The Paloma is a great refreshing drink. So uh, all of these suggest uh, agave has a wonderful association, positive association with consumers. So all of these point to the fact that we see a good runway ahead, as I said, for the next five to 10 years, not at these uh, incredible growth rates we've experienced. Those growth rates will come down, but we still expect the category to go faster than the U.S. spirits industry in total. And you said earlier that 
you were looking for strategic gaps in the portfolio. So I assume that's something you're doing all the time. Is there anything at the moment that you're thinking about? Or, you know, what do you see as the next big category in spirits? Firstly, I'm, I'd say I'm very pleased with the portfolio strength we have now. It is a momentum portfolio. We're well positioned. You know, whiskey is, our, is the core of this company. And whiskey is hot. Scotch whiskey, American whiskey, we've got a phenomenal whiskey portfolio. We're very active managers of our portfolio, both selling businesses and acquiring brands. Our interest in acquiring brands is really around the quality, high quality brands at the top end of the spirits market. That's what we're focused on. I mean, we bought Aviation Gin recently to add to our portfolio. Now, we had Tanqueray and Gordon's, but Aviation was a brand that we saw really had a very attractive runway ahead. And so uh, we'd like to be doing bolt-on acquisitions, but it's really the quality of the brand, not so much a category gap. We're also interested in the no zero alcohol and low alcohol space, where we think there's a real runway for attractive growth. And uh, we're doing that with our own brands. We have a lovely brand called Seedlip that we acquired. We have uh, Tanqueray and Gordon 00, Guinness 00. So you can expect us to do more in that space. And then we're tracking trends. Uh, just like I've talked about tequila, it's interesting to see the high end of gin, the high end of rum has attractive uh, dynamics right now. We're watching what's happening with Mezcal. We have three lovely plays in that space. So uh, one of the things in our category is you can't predict with certainty what the next big trend is going to be. You've just got to spot it very early. And so uh, we're well positioned to understand what shifts are taking place. But uh, the most uh, enduring strength of a company like ours is these trends don't change overnight. They last typically decades. And then uh, when they turn, uh, you've got to just be in position to uh, benefit from them and to exploit the opportunity as you see it. And I assume that's why it's so important to have a portfolio of brands rather than just a single brand. Absolutely. And I think that, again, is uh, when you look at our portfolio across categories, price points, brands, we are very well covered for shifts in uh, long-term consumer trends. And we also have a, a good innovation capability to organically develop new brands and, and new line extensions. And we have, in addition to acquiring big brands, we have uh, this division called Distill Ventures, where we invest in uh, early stage brands with entrepreneurs, leave the brand with the entrepreneur. And uh, that gives us, we have about 25 investments in that space. It gives us access to some of the best entrepreneurs and ideas that are coming to the spirits market. You mentioned Aviation Gin before. Do you mind just reminding our listeners who started that brand? Yes, it was uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, <laughs> and his team. And uh, it's a lovely brand. It's got a, a lovely taste profile, very distinguished from classic gins, less juniper forward. Lovely packaging, and, and Ryan's done a great job in the brand building around aviation. Maybe we should get him on the podcast next. I'm sure it'll be a lot more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I've always 
wondered about is how you can get a bartender or a restaurant or a pub to select your brands when they're making up a cocktail. Is there a trick to that? Is it what goes on behind the scenes there? Uh, it's a great question, Hannah, and it's, it's really important in our business. The advocacy of bartenders and opinion formers in setting trends in our businesses is really important to how you build brands. Uh, word of mouth is the most powerful way. It's not advertising. It's when you step up to that bar and the bartender tells you a story about uh, Tanqueray 10 Gin or Don Julio 1942. So we spend a lot of time and investment in supporting the on-trade. And so some of the things, for example, we run and we're now well over a decade into this, the leading global bartender mixologist competition. It's called World Class. And uh, it's run every year, different city every year. This year, it's going to be in Sydney. And uh, this is a grassroots competition that starts around the world. And you have knockoff stages where the top bartenders emerge in every country and they come to this final. So that's been something we've been doing over 10 years. Uh, we have an, a platform online called the Diageo Bar Academy, which has incredible content in terms of the business of bars and educating bartenders and mixologists on categories, on brands, on cocktails. Our commercial teams support and call on the on-trade and put a lot of focus on it. And, you know, as we went through the devastating impact of COVID on the on-trade, the hospitality sector was in huge stress through the lockdowns. I mean, we stayed very close to our on-trade partners and customers uh, and invested strongly in helping them recover through COVID. And all of that makes a difference. And so to your point, the bartender in our business is hugely important. And we really value those relationships and uh, spend a lot of time in how we can help bars and restaurants and the on-trade make their businesses more successful. And that's where you build the connection. And that's how we get our brands uh, to perform. I'm really pleased with our market share gains in the on-trade, where, for example, in the United States, we've come out of COVID with really strong gains in the on-trade in market share terms. Hot categories like tequila will inevitably attract competition, and we have certainly seen a number of new entrants like Kendall Jenner's 818 brand and The Rock's Terramana brand. Many listeners will draw parallels with the explosion of craft beer brands that took place over the past decade. So how do you think about the risk of new entrants in the spirits category? Uh, now, this may sound a little counterintuitive, uh, but I welcome lots of high-quality entrance into our categories. And the reason I do is it brings more interest, cachet, vibrancy to the category. And uh, the most classic example of the last decade I'd, I'd say to you is if you look at what happened in gin, particularly in Europe, you had a huge number of new entrants come into the gin category. And these interesting gins were being built in the on-trade, entrepreneurs behind them, and what it did was, in that early evening occasion, brought consumers out of kind of the boring defaults of wine and lager 
into these beautifully crafted gin and tonics. And uh, so the gin category expanded significantly. And through that, as long as we're doing our job right, which we did with Tanqueray and Gordon's, we actually gained outsized market share in the gin category. So uh, I really do welcome entry into the spirits category because our main source of growth is from other forms of alcohol. And uh, interesting new brands and entrepreneurs behind the brands actually help grow the category faster. And then brands like in tequila, the main job we have to do is ensure Casamigos and Don Julio remains uh, vibrant and aspirational and recruiting new consumers. So that's how I see it. It's as a good thing, but it, it raises the stakes for all of us to be fabulous brand builders. So does that mean it comes with an increase in marketing spend on your end? Well, if you look at our marketing spend, it has gone up. But what goes along with it is we can measure the effectiveness of the spend very well. I mean, our growth algorithm is to have strong top-line growth. Medium term, we've said 5 to 7%. As you've seen in the last few years, we've upweighted investment in marketing and capital spending. But at the same time, we want to drive margin expansion. And so uh, this is a, a growth algorithm that takes investment, but we have the levers to ensure that we can drive, uh, we want high quality growth, which is a combination of volume, mix, and price. And we want to get those three in balance because volume growth is when you're bringing new consumers into the franchise. Uh, mix is people drinking better, and we're well positioned for that. And then price is the third lever, which you have, if you have strong brands that are well invested, it gives you an ability to take the appropriate levels of price. And so investing is fundamental for us to ensure sustainable, high-quality growth. Well, speaking of price, inflation has been a topical issue for consumers and consumer companies over the past few months. You were able to take mid-single-digit pricing over the past year to offset the increase in your cost base and to protect your margins, which I think speaks to the strength of your brands. How do you expect the inflationary environment to affect your revenue growth and margins over the next year or two? Well, we're still seeing the inflationary pressure. So certainly we just started our new fiscal year, fiscal 23. We expect the impact on cost of goods inflation to continue. And that's certainly what we're planning on. I think longer term, it's a little hard to call. But what I would say is our approach is to stay very close to the shifts in the cost environment. And then as a company, we have multiple levers to uh, work through offsetting the impacts of inflation. We talked about revenue growth management. I mean, really making sure we do that superbly. We have a mix in our favor, you know, just in the results we uh, announced in July. We had uh, Johnny Walker grew over 30%, but Johnny Walker Red Label grew 20%, roughly. Black Label grew 40%, and Blue Label grew 60%. So you can see mix is a real positive for us. And higher price point products, we make better margins. So that helps us. Getting volume growth is hugely beneficial for leverage through the PL. And we had 10% volume growth in the year we just completed. So that helps. 
then we have aged liquids. You know, the, the youngest whiskey in a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label is 12 years old, the youngest. And it's got all these lovely malts from all over Scotland in that beautiful whiskey. So we have a buffer there because that whiskey was made uh, years ago. So you put that all together and productivity. We're doubling down on our efficiency and productivity programs internally. It's not a program, it's our culture. And we're really focused on ensuring everything that the consumer doesn't see or touch, we are driving very hard to get even more productivity. And so that gives us the levers to be able to uh, handle inflation and ensure we stay invested in the business and have the capacity to expand margins, as we've indicated in our three-year guidance for the next three years. And you were one of the few consumer staples companies that was able to increase your gross margins over the past year. So that's very impressive. As the US Federal Reserve has started to raise rates, investor concerns have shifted from inflation to recession. There is a risk that consumers start to trade down to cheaper brands or pull back on their consumption of spirits altogether if their disposable income falls. What are you seeing at the moment in the US in terms of changing consumer purchasing patterns and perhaps emerging pockets of weakness? Uh, So I'd say not much shift in trend yet. And uh, we are tracking this very closely. And uh, if you go back over a couple of decades, uh, the spirits industry is very resilient. I mean, it's had volume growth right through the last every year, right through the last 20 years. In the global financial crisis, you, you saw a few quarters of down trading, slight down trading, and then it reverted back to premiumization. So part of what uh, helps us is the affordable luxury and the infrequent purchase that I talked about earlier. And uh, we do see the continued trends right now of the premium end of the market being the strongest. So our tequila brands, our high-end whiskey brands, our high-end rums and gins, all of that is continuing to do well. Having said that, we're not just sitting here saying all this will just continue that way. We're watching it very closely. And we are going to stay alert and vigilant to any shift in trend. And we will adjust. And we are comfortable with our portfolio and our route to market, how we go to market and the channels we serve, that if we see shifts happening, we want to be the first to spot them and adjust to them, our investment, our focus. And uh, so I remain confident that we will steer our way through this effectively. And uh, and we take a long view. You know, when COVID happened, I mean, the, our business got dramatically hit, but we said, we're gonna do the right things for our people, our brands, our customers, and we want to emerge stronger. And as we look at this phase of volatility, it's very much the same view. Our focus is on emerging stronger We will double down our external focus and connection to consumers and watch what happens there. And we want to play offense. We want to stay invested to win market share. And times of turmoil is when strong companies really, it's an opportunity to perform even better and to gain market share. And that's very much the mindset we're taking to the current volatility out there. The comparison with the GFC is interesting. How would you say the business is positioned today relative to that period? Uh, Very differently. 
I mean, I was uh, was running our North America business at that time. And uh, I would say our portfolio is much stronger and healthier. I mean, we've exited a number of businesses which were would have been drags today, our wine business, the tail brands in the US and many other parts around the world where we've exited businesses. Our talent and culture, far stronger. I'm really very proud. We just had our top 100 leaders in London for the first time since COVID a few weeks back. And this is an incredible group, 23 nationalities, very diverse in terms of ethnicity and gender diversity, and top talent. And more than one in four have come from outside the Arjo. So that's much stronger. Our data and analytics is much stronger. And so we can track and respond much quicker to changes in the external environment. And we're far more strongly invested behind our brands. So the brands are a lot healthier because we've had multiple years of a big step up in marketing investment. So you put that all together, and I'd say the company is in a in a very different place and a much stronger place to navigate through the volatility that we're facing now. And the data and analytics tool you've talked about, that was a decision that you made several years ago to invest into those tools. And, you know, we've seen it pay off in your market share gains relative to competitors. So I'm interested to understand what prompted you to make that strategic decision at a time when many of the consumer staples companies that we look at and follow closely were actually pulling back on investment. They were really trying hard to cut costs and improve their margins. And you were really taking a different path. Yeah, I'd say it started on the very kind of simple premise, uh, Hannah, that the key to long-term value creation in a business like ours, where we are a small player in a big and attractive premium uh, drinks business, is to be uh, phenomenal brand builders, really close to the consumer and really understanding how you build brands sustainably. And to do that well, data and analytics is fundamental, right, in terms of getting consumer insights and foresights, monitoring trends, knowing how to every dollar of marketing spend what you're getting in return. In the days I grew up in the consumer products business, I mean, we didn't have these tools. It was quite judgmental in terms of uh, you did something last year, you tweaked it next year. And now the level of sophistication we have, and and you're quite right, the Ajo uh, was ahead of this uh, when we started this journey several years ago. Uh, We have tools, uh, well, this is our names, like Catalyst and Sensor and Radar. These are proprietary tools that give our marketing communities and our commercial teams incredible data and insight into uh, the decisions they make and supporting them to make good decisions. So uh, the days are long gone where a brand manager comes and says, you know what, I spent 100 last year this way, and this year I want 110, and I'm going to spend it this way. It's no, show me the case. You've got to come with the analytics to say, if I want to spend 20% more on Guinness in Nigeria, show me how you're going to spend it and tell me the return you expect. And then we will track the actual results to that. So all that data feeding into this is uh, incredibly rich. It is big data, and it has to get 
We've got tools of machine learning that helps the analytics get better over time. They get more predictive. And we're on this journey, by the way, by no means arrived. I mean, this never stops. And I'd say we really look at this data and digitization of the Arjo as a huge source of competitive strength. And we think we can take it much further. Another area you've been investing behind is your sustainability and social responsibility agenda. As a spirits manufacturer, you're in a bit of a tricky spot. How do you see Diageo playing a positive role in consumer attitudes towards alcohol and responsible consumption of alcohol? Uh, this, this is a very, very important area of our long-term health and future of the company. So I'd say it, it all starts from a very simple but fundamental approach to the business, and it's the following. I may have used this sentence earlier. Our philosophy is for people who choose to drink, we want them to drink in moderation and drink better. It's really, and all those words are carefully chosen. We're not in the business of getting people who don't want to drink to drink. For people who choose to drink, moderation is critical. We have no interest in excessive harmful levels of consumption of alcohol. So what do we do about this? I'd say we take it very seriously. It's ingrained in our culture and our operating approach. Our marketeers are trained in how we communicate with our brands to ensure we are, some of our best campaigns are around responsible consumption of our brands. We work with governments right across the world on areas of uh, whether it's drink driving, underage drinking, excessive uh, drinking, working with governments to reduce uh, alcohol harm. We're investing ourselves in as a company and we've set out very ambitious goals through 2030 on what we want to achieve on uh, how we impact the behavior of moderation with alcohol, uh, how we reduce drink driving, underage drinking. We've got programs that are very creative on uh, having an impact on society. So this is core to who we are. It is uh, not in conflict with value creation for the business. In fact, they go hand in hand. And I'm really proud of the way our teams, 28,000 colleagues right across the Arjo, I mean, this is what we come into work every day, wanting to make a difference on. And uh, it is one of the things I, I am really proud of, the company's culture and how we hope to have an impact on this area of what we call positive drinking. Now, there are two other areas which are really important to us, uh, impact on the planet, and the RGO leads in this regard on water and carbon. And finally, on inclusion and diversity, again, uh, the company, this is a real competitive strength. Our uh, journey on diversity, which has been going on for well over a decade, we have uh, an incredibly diverse leadership team and organization, and there's no question in my mind that's a huge driver of the company's performance. Ivan, I just have one final question for you. What excites you most about Diageo as you look out over the next five years? You know, as we complete 25 years, December 17th this uh, year, Diageo will be 25. What I'm excited about is uh, the best years are ahead of us. 
the combination of the marketplace opportunity and I'd say the distinctive advantages of the Arjo, which include its culture and talent, and how we see the market and our commitment to sustainability, positive drinking, while being incredibly imaginative brand builders, I see a lot of uh, exciting growth ahead. We are a business that has to plan not just for five years, we've got to plan for 10, 20, 30 years. And we are making those decisions. We've just are uh, in the process of opening a pristine single malt distillery in Yunnan province in China. Now, that's not going to pay out for decades. Uh, we're reopening some beautiful distilleries in Scotland, which will also take a couple of decades before you see a meaningful return. So I look to the next 5, 10, 20 years and say this is a company that needs to stay sharp, restless, never get complacent, and has the opportunity to be a truly exciting compounder and one that can deliver uh, very good returns and create a uh, be a, a really terrific magnet for talent. And uh, that's what I look forward to. That was Ivan Menezes, the Chief Executive of Diageo, speaking there with Magellan's Head of Consumer Franchises, Hannah Dickinson. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.